Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Mike Weigline. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, and if you're visiting with us today, I would just add my greetings. Um, our passage this morning is from Isaiah chapter 61, and we're going to be talking about waiting for good news this morning. That's sort of our theme for Advent uh, this year. So you can uh, find that in your own Bibles or pull it up on your phones or just listen if you'd like. And Let's pray before we read this morning. Heavenly Father, as, as Joe just prayed, we do ask that you would soften our hearts this morning. Um, Lord, we, we, we thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit who, who authored these words, who inspired them. Um, Lord, we thank you once again that, that your word is living and active. And we pray, Lord, that, that as we hear your word this morning, uh, that we would find you uh, today. Would you reveal yourself to us once again? We pray that as we, we come into this season of Advent that, that you would uh, prepare us once again or help us to prepare to receive you once again into our hearts. So we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and on their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord, for my soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, I just wanted to do a quick informal poll this morning. Uh, How many of you, well, I guess I'd I'd be interested to know, when does Christmas start in your homes? 
When does Christmas start in your homes? How many of you have, are just fully decorated already? You're, you've got the Christmas tree up, okay? We've got a few folks. Christmas carols playing on, on constant repeat. Yes, Carolina. Okay, um, how many of you have at least some decorations up? Okay, we've got, we've got a few things. How many of you have nothing up yet? Anybody? Oh, man, you guys really, I don't know if that's procrastination or you just really appreciate Advent, but I'm glad, glad to hear this. How many of you, uh, Christmas starts in November at some point? Yes, we got a few, okay. Uh, in our house, we kind of have, we have a little like debate over this every year about when Christmas should start. I like to hold things off until Advent or the beginning of December, Everybody else in my family is ready to start November 1st. They would be very happy to do that. So I've held off for a little bit this year. In the United States, I always had Thanksgiving. I could say, let's wait till after Thanksgiving. But here I can't do that. So we've been doing Christmas for a while. We, we love Christmas. People love Christmas. And there's good reason for that. It's, it's okay. This is a good thing. But today is the first day of Advent. So I would ask, how many of you are ready to celebrate Advent. How many of you are ready? Oh, look at you guys. Okay, we're ready to celebrate Advent. I like that. Um, I, was, I was wondering, sometimes it feels to me it's hard to have the same enthusiasm behind Advent that we do about Christmas. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it's hard to get the same enthusiasm. We don't, we don't go around wishing people a happy Advent or Merry Advent You know, when we see them. We're already greeting people with our holiday greetings, Merry Christmas, Happy Christmas, Happy Holidays, things like that. Advent seems like something more that we, we observe than we celebrate in some ways, I think. We observe it more than we celebrate it. Uh, and yet it's the season that comes around every year that we celebrate in the church. And in fact, most people outside of the church, I think, maybe don't have an idea of what Advent is, right? We all know about Christmas, but Advent's sort of a different thing because we are waiting for Christ to come. This is what Advent is all about. And if we're going to observe it every year, then it's probably worth asking the question, uh, what is it that we're doing? What is this Advent season all about? Why do we light these candles and read these scriptures each week for a season every year? I think most people, and I, I'm sensing maybe that's the case for people in this room, I think most of the time we treat Advent as a countdown to Christmas, right? Advent is sort of the countdown to Christmas. And in many ways, that's true. You have your Advent calendar up. We open maybe a little door and eat a piece of chocolate every day or whatever you have there. Uh, but we treat it as this countdown to Christmas. But I wonder if seeing it that way doesn't lead us to treat the season of Advent as just extended Christmas season, right? We're already full on Christmas. Lots of parties, lots of presents, lots of food and cookies, lots of movies, lots of Christmas sweaters. I see some out there this morning, okay, right? We're already celebrating Christmas. And it's like this month-long celebration uh, between the, the end of November and Christmas. And it's not to say that we shouldn't enjoy the build-up to Christmas each year, but I wonder if in terms of Advent, if we aren't missing the big picture to some degree uh, of what this season is all about sometimes. Advent is the season, it's one of the liturgical traditions of the church that we observe of waiting and preparation for Jesus to come to us. The incarnation, which we celebrate as, at Christmas, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to live and be with us. And it's meant to be a time of reflection, it's meant to be a time of, of thinking about our lives and, and holding it up uh, to God's grace. And, and I have to say, as I've reflected myself on Advent over the years, 
what I've come to realize is that I'm really not very good at waiting. I'm really, I'm really not very good at waiting uh, in, in preparation. At least they're not skills that come to me naturally. Maybe they are for some of you, but I don't like waiting. I think I come by it honestly, though. I, I come from a culture. I don't know if all cultures are like this, but I come from a culture that doesn't really value waiting at all. We don't really like to wait much for anything anymore. Uh, in the United States, we've gotten pay at the pump. You just put your credit card in, pull it out, or you can do your bank transfers. Uh, we, have, um, we have check yourself out at the grocery store, which honestly is not always faster, but we think it is, right? So we check ourselves out at the grocery store. We have grab-and-go food at convenience stores all the time, fast food everywhere, Popeye's down now on Wenceslas Square. It's a line out the door every day, okay? I, I, uh, we can stream sports, and movies and TV shows on demand whenever we want. When I was growing up, you used to have to wait at least a week to watch the next episode, and now I go through the whole season, right, just like that. Stay up late, you all know what I'm talking about. We don't have to wait anymore. In the United States, if I ever wanted something to be shipped to me, I could order it, and I could have it there within 48 hours at my doorstep. And even though that's a really fast turnaround, that's pretty good, I still found myself tracking the packages online to see maybe, maybe it will come a day early, right? Uh, and so I don't like to wait. I just don't like to wait. The point is that many of us think that we should be able to have what we want when we want it. And really, there's very little reason that our lives should ever have to slow down or that we should ever have to wait for anything. I think this is often the prevailing attitude we have these days. We don't see much value in waiting uh, just for its own sake most of the time. What's the point? What's the point? And yet the idea of Advent pushes back against this view. The idea of Advent sort of pushes back against this view. It's a season that says that times of waiting and preparation can be good for us in and of themselves. And in spite of my general aversion to waiting deep down, I know that this is true. I have experienced this in my life. The parts of my life that I value the most are the ones that took the longest to accomplish or that required the most preparation. I often think, for me, of my ordination process, the process of becoming a minister as part of that. And from the times I first started thinking about going into full-time ministry to when I actually was ordained, it was probably 15 to 20 years. But from when I actually started the official process to when I was ordained, it was at least four years, four years of waiting to become ordained as a minister. And during that time, it was a process that was exciting sometimes. It was hard. It was energizing. It was exhausting. It was tedious. It was humbling. And it was affirming, kind of like life in general, I think. And while at times I would have liked to have sped up that process and skip over parts of it, I now recognize the value of the waiting and preparation, that it was a time for God to work in me and to shape me and to help me put my trust in him to bring about what I was hoping for. And there was an end game with all of that that I looked forward to as well that put some perspective on what I was doing. There was something that I was waiting for. There was a purpose for all of the waiting and preparation. It wasn't just sort of waiting for nothing. And I think this is how Advent works for us in our life of faith. It gives us time and space for God to work in us and to shape us. 
and to help us to put our trust in him. And it also places an end game in front of us, the coming of the Messiah into the world, which puts some perspective on our lives. The the waiting and the preparation of this season serves a purpose. They have a goal. So Advent is a time of, of waiting for Christmas. But, but really what that means is it is a time of waiting for God to fulfill his promises to us, his covenantal promises to his people. There are things that God promises Israel in the Old Testament, and Israel was waiting for them to happen. And as Christians, now we see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these promises, which is why Advent leads to Christmas. It's why we celebrate Christ's coming, or when we celebrate Christ's coming in God's faithfulness. This year's Advent, by the way, is about as short as it can be. It's only three weeks from today or from tomorrow to December 25th. And that's not much when compared to the hundreds of years that the Israelites waited for God to fulfill his promises for the Messiah to come. And so we might learn something about waiting by looking at their example. And so that's part of what we're looking at this morning uh, in the scripture that we're looking at today. Answering these questions takes us back into the Old Testament. What are we waiting for? What has God promised to his people? What were the promises that God made to the Israelites in the first place? And many of the Bible readings that are used during Advent, they're Old Testament passages. We've heard a few of them already this morning. They're passages from the Psalms and the prophets in particular. And today's passage is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, which is uh, sometimes often referred to as the fifth gospel because it talks so much about the coming Messiah. When you read Isaiah, you see it over and over and over again. It talks about the coming Christ and what he was coming to do. And when you think about Isaiah in its original context, Isaiah was was written to the Israelites and it was prophesying about different issues surrounding Israel's exile in Babylon. In the first part of Isaiah, it foretells the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile as God's righteous judgment for Israel's unfaithfulness. They had gotten so far away from God. For a long time, the people of Israel, they'd been turning away from him. They'd been trusting him themselves. They'd been worshiping idols and foreign gods. And finally, they get to a point where God says, enough, enough. And he uses the Babylonians to carry out his judgment on Israel. And so the first part of Isaiah is foretelling these things, these events that were going to happen in the life of of his people. But then the second part of Isaiah is written from the perspective that God's judgment has already occurred. And so while things are bad in the present, these chapters look forward to God's redemption of his people and the eventual restoration of their purposes For the original audience of these words, they were a people who had been forced from the land that was promised to their ancestors by God. And they'd been forced to live in a foreign land, serving a people who worshipped foreign gods. And it's it's hard to overemphasize just how devastating of a time this was for the people of Israel. Here are God's chosen people living in the land which God had promised to their ancestors. They have a king over them from the line of David, which was another of God's promises, with the temple in Jerusalem, the the ultimate sign of God's presence with them. And the next thing they knew, all of this had been taken away from them. The Babylonians had come in, they'd sacked Jerusalem, they had destroyed the temple, they'd kicked out the king, they took 
the Israelites to be in captivity in Babylon. And their lives have been completely turned upside down. And all of a sudden, every promise that God had made to them now seemed empty. There was a question behind it. Every sign of God's presence with them had been destroyed, or there was a way of seeing things that way. And the question that they were faced with was whether maybe God was real at all. And if so, why didn't he stop all of these things from happening? Was God really more powerful? Was their God, Yahweh, really more powerful than all the other gods? And not only that, but what was their identity now that the temple was destroyed and they were no longer in the promised land? And so the Israelites had to grapple with all of these things, all of these questions, all of these dilemmas. And they also had to figure out, in a way, how to be faithful to the living God, the God of their ancestors, while also seeking to survive and prosper in this faraway place. How were they going to continue to worship the one true God if they weren't in the land, they didn't have the temple? And yet, at that time, the home was always on their mind. Their great desire was to return to the land that God had given them and to rebuild everything there. These were a people who were waiting for good news. They were waiting for good news. And so to this people, Isaiah 61, the passage we read this morning, is a welcome encouragement. It is good news. The speaker is proclaiming a mission of bringing good news to the poor and to the afflicted. It's referring to people who who are outcast and oppressed. And it promises to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim a year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. This was a promise of God's good future for Israel, for his people. And these words would have spoken deeply to a people who were held in captivity, exiles from their homeland. And they would have been heard as words of freedom. When it references the year of the Lord's favor, it's talking about the mandate in the book of Leviticus, way back in the Torah, in the law, that every 50th year would be declared a year of jubilee. Maybe you've heard of this before. But it was a time of radical release and liberation, where debts were canceled, where slaves were freed, where land was restored to the original owners. And people and families would go back to their, the home, their homes and the lands that had originally belonged to their ancestors. This is what it says in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 10, about the, the year of Jubilee. It says, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years, and then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee to you. This was what was going to happen for the Israelites in exile. This this was God's promise to them from Isaiah. This kind of freedom and liberty. This was the good news that they were waiting for, that they had been waiting for its fulfillment. And Isaiah 61 goes on to describe exchanging a headdress for ashes. And we sing a song in here regularly that talks about trading beauty for ashes. It comes from from this passage. About trading oil of gladness for mourning. The garments of praise for a faint spirit. And all of these images are meant to symbolize a coming great reversal of fortune for Israel. They are captives, 
but soon they will be free. They are living in mourning, but soon they are going to celebrate. They have been taken from their land and being held captive, but soon it's going to be restored to them. And verse 4 shows them rebuilding the cities which had been destroyed. This is the good news that is being preached to these people. Their lives are going to change. Verse 3 says they will be called oaks of righteousness. They're going to be made strong again in the Lord. And God is going to receive all of the credit and the glory for this. There's a lot of, of priestly imagery in this passage. I think there's, there's a way of reading Isaiah 61, and it talks about a year of the Lord's vengeance or the coming of the Lord's vengeance. It talks about how their oppressors are now going to be serving them, that they're going to uh, reap their fortune. And you think, what's going on here? Is it just turning everything around, and now the Israelites are oppressing others? But that's not really what's being gotten at here. They're being described as the priests that God has made them to be, a kingdom of priests, And here we see reaffirmed the purpose of God's covenant with Israel. It is to bring him glory and to show the world that he is the one true God. This this restoration of Israel will be God's doing alone. And it's going to show that he is faithful to his people and to his promises. And that they will serve as a witness to all of the other peoples of the earth. I think one of the the interesting things about Isaiah 61, and you probably heard this when I read it, is that it's spoken from the first person point of view. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. It's from the perspective of, of someone, a particular person, who has been chosen and anointed by God for this particular purpose, to redeem God's people, Israel, and to carry out this task that God has for them. In four places, this ties uh, Isaiah 61 to other parts of Isaiah. There are four places in Isaiah before this uh, that there are passages that have taken shape around a figure that people have come to call the servant of the Lord. And in each of these passages, the servant is committed to bringing about Israel's redemption because this is what God has called them to do. And this is the servant part. But sometimes this servant of the Lord is also referred to as God's suffering servant. And this person, they have bound themselves to act according to God's will. But the redemption of Israel can only come at great cost to themselves. And this is the suffering part. And there's a lot of passages from Isaiah that you probably are familiar with. We call them messianic passages that talk about this servant of the Lord. Isaiah 53, we'll read a couple of excerpts, but you might recognize these verses talking about him. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Verses 10 through 12 say this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, 
And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The narrator of Isaiah 61 is clearly claiming this identity for himself, saying, I am this person, I am this servant of the Lord that Isaiah has been talking about, and I am the one who has been anointed by God and to come and fulfill this promised redemption, who will enact the good news that Isaiah is proclaiming. But by claiming the mantle of this servant, the narrator of Isaiah 61 is also saying that he is the one who will suffer so uh, himself for the restoration of Israel's fortunes. He's going to bring these things about, but it's going to come at great cost to himself. One of the things that I love about this passage is that Jesus uh, quotes this scripture as a reference to himself. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is visiting a synagogue in his hometown, and he picks up the scroll, and this is what it says in Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is a big announcement on Jesus' part. It's a little bit of of a mic drop moment, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, where everybody would have just stopped and looked at him in silence. He's here in his hometown, these people that he had grown up with his entire life, and he says, I'm the guy that Isaiah was talking about. I am the one, the suffering servant. And Jesus here, early in his ministry, is laying out his mission He is both clear on what he has been called to do, but he's also aware of what it is going to cost him. He is the one who is going to restore the fortunes of God's people. He's going to bring about this great liberation, and yet it's going to be at great cost to himself. Perhaps what we see most importantly here is that Jesus sees himself as the answer to God's promises of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah He is the anointed one. He is the one that they have been waiting for. And so now he is here to proclaim good news. The Israel of Jesus' time had many similarities with the Israel of Isaiah's. Well, the the Israelites in Jesus' time, they were not living in a foreign land. They were under Roman rule. They were being ruled by foreign oppressors, and they had to serve them. And so the words of Isaiah 61 would have spoken fully to their desires also for freedom and for liberation as well. Starting next week here at ICP, we're going to be beginning a sermon series that's going to take us through the gospel of Luke. And as we go through this gospel together, we would do well to keep Isaiah 61 in mind as Jesus proclaimed mission, his self-proclaimed mission. 
How do we see this passage lived out through Jesus' teachings and actions? How do we see it lived out through his entire life? To whom is the good news being preached in this gospel? And who are the captives who are going to be liberated? And what we'll find as we go through Luke's gospel is that Jesus expands this promise. It's not just for Israel anymore, but it is for all people. For all of those who would put their trust in him and follow him, they will experience the year of the Lord's favor, this kind of jubilee, this kind of radical freedom and liberation. And so we do well to ask how these words of Isaiah that are repeated by Jesus speak to us too. How do these words speak to us today? Most of us here, although I know some, we all come from different backgrounds, have different stories. I know for some of us, being exiled from our homeland is a very real thing. For some of us at ICP, we can't go home. But for many of us, we're not a people in exile, not in that way. We're not being physically held captive. But the truth is that there is nowhere in this world that the oppression of sin does not reach us in some way, holding each one of us captive. It would be a mistake to look too quickly past the very real and concrete ways people in this world are oppressed and and held captive, ways that we as the church should recognize and speak against. But we are all held captive by sin in some way, and we long for deliverance. We long to be set free from the things that bind us. Whether we are held down by by anger or by greed, by lust or by worry and anxiety, maybe it's sickness and pain, maybe it's depression or addictions. Each one of us has something or many things that we long to be freed from. There isn't one of us in this room who doesn't need someone to bind up the brokenness of our hearts in some way. And so to each of us, Israel proclaims deliverance. Excuse me, Isaiah proclaims deliverance and freedom in the year of the Lord's favor. A promise that Jesus came to fulfill and will complete when he comes again. The great reversal. I like the way that one uh, pastor sees examples of this reversal displayed throughout history and literature. As he's reflecting on what Jesus is talking about here, this is what he says. He says, this is Nelson Mandela emerging from his jail cell after so many years of unjust incarceration and walking out into the sunlight of a new day dawning. This is the rollback of injustice and of oppression as the once imprisoned man takes the oath of office as president of the very nation that had locked him away for 27 long and seemingly never-to-end years. This is the exuberant crowds of disbelief standing atop the Berlin Wall as it fell, taking wax at it with sledgehammers, as the old order of things in Europe was swept away. This is East German families streaming through the cracks in the walls to embrace loved ones, who for decades had lived both three miles away and a million miles away on the other side of the wall. This is tears of wonder. This is Psalm 126 when people arrive at a new day and find their mouths filled with giggles that they could not suppress even if they tried and they had no desire to try because the Lord had restored the fortunes of Zion. 
This pastor goes on to quote a character from the, the book, The Lord of the Rings, at the end of these books, who says this, does this mean that everything bad that has ever happened is going to be unmade? Does this mean that everything bad that has ever happened is going to be unmade? This is God's yes to such a question, what we see in Isaiah here. There will be a day, friends, when we will wake up and all will be made right, and we will be clothed in garments of praise and salvation and righteousness, which God alone can give us, when we will no longer have anything to worry about. Isaiah 61 closes by declaring God's faithfulness, saying this, For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up from all of the nations. As sure as we can count on the sprout coming up each spring in a garden, we can trust that God is going to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. And this is really what Advent is all about, God's faithfulness to us. A faithfulness that is shown fully to us through God's own son, Jesus Christ. This is the heart of what we believe as Christians. In Advent, we wait for God. We wait for God not in the sense that the the jury is still out or that God still has something to prove to us in some way, but we wait with anticipation, with expectancy for God to fulfill his promises to us. And we wait with trust in him. This is what it means to have faith. Trusting that God is going to do everything that he says he will do. It means trusting God even when we don't like his timing. It means trusting God even when we are tired of waiting. And it also means that all of this is God's work to do. That he will restore our fortunes through Christ our Lord. Believing in the good news that we've already received. So we wait, friends. We wait. I think of the Israelites who were waiting in exile in Babylon. They were waiting uh, and trusting in a promise without knowing when or how it was going to come about. They had to wait on God's good future for them when it seemed like God was nowhere to be found. And this is good future is the one that we wait for as well. As Joe said earlier, we're waiting for Christ's second coming. This is the good future that is described to us in Revelation. When Jesus will return to reign as the righteous and just king. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be no more crying or death or hunger or fighting. When he will be our God and we will be his people. And he will dwell with us forever. This is where we put our hope as Christians, our ultimate hope. We observe Advent each year, and as we observe Advent each year, there's sort of both a looking back and a looking forward for us as Christians. We look back to Christ's birth 2,000 years ago, uh, and that's why we call this a countdown to Christmas, this Advent. But we also look forward to a future that we aren't sure when it will arrive or exactly how it's going to happen. But observing Advent, as one pastor says, points to the importance of waiting and anticipating and trusting in a promised future that seems very far removed from our current circumstance. When we have a hard time believing in this future, this promise that God has given us, then we can look back to Christ's birth and the fulfillment of all of the hopes of God's people in the Old Testament to see God's faithfulness, which allows us to look forward to the future with hope and trust. 
In a sense, for us as Christians, we live our lives in sort of a perpetual advent, a perpetual waiting and expectation, looking back to the promises that that God has already fulfilled in Christ and trusting in the ultimate fulfillment of that when Jesus will return. But friends, this kind of waiting isn't supposed to be passive. It's not just waiting around until something happens. The waiting that we have here is sort of an an active waiting. As people who serve a God who who loves and enacts justice and righteousness, our time of waiting and preparation includes working for righteousness and justice in the places where we have been brought by God. Whether that's our homes or our schools or our workplaces, or even literally this city that we live in. Uh, The pastor of the last church I worked for, a good friend and mentor of mine, he used to, to share a benediction where he would say this, remember that you go nowhere by accident. Wherever you are, God is sending you. Friends, remember that you go nowhere by accident. Wherever you are, God is sending you. And so friends, would you go forth into the world today, living in the hope of God's good future, promised to you by the one who is faithful to his promises. And go forth knowing that God has placed you where you are to be his witness, to work for righteousness and justice in those places and to share his good news. The good news of Jesus' birth is that God will bring about what he promises. And we can count on this. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks once again for the gift of of this day, for the gift of life that you have given each one of us, for the gift of fellowship with each other as as we gather for worship in this place. And we pray, Lord, now as, as we end our time of worship together as we're sent forth from this place. Lord, that we would we would continue to worship you in our hearts and our lives by how we live and act. And Lord, we pray that in this this Advent season, as we look forward to another Christmas, that you would help us to to remember your faithfulness to us, that that's what this season is all about, and that we would put our trust and hope in you. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.